from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by conservative podcaster Drew Allen, who joins us from California. Patrick Canley, a consultant and a Democrat activist from Chicago. Nick Kacharubis from DePaul University. And in our second hour, we'll be joined by Major General Jeffrey Schlosser, who's author of the book, uh, Marathon War, and he uh, directed the 101st Airborne in Afghanistan. He was a guest a couple of weeks ago, and he'll be back in hour number two. And uh, we come to you this evening from the beautiful palatial studios of our new flagship, which is uh, WYND AM 560 in Elk Grove, Village, Illinois. Our phone lines open 1-800-723-8029, 1-800-723-8029. We got quite a response from last week's program, which got very, very uh, combustible because we had two guests in studio, both of whom said they were not vaccinated. And uh, we went ahead with the program, and nobody was... We didn't dismiss anybody because of that, but they uh, uh, they took some heat because of those positions. And we're going to talk a little bit more about it because uh, if, if you watch the news this week, I mean, COVID and the and the spread of COVID and the number of hospitalizations and the number of uh, deaths associated with, I mean, it continues to be the major story in the in, in the country. Uh, and again, uh, we we can't we can't ignore it. Uh, so we're going to continue that discussion for a portion of the program, but another big issue is evictions. We haven't spoken too much about that, but a lot of people are being evicted. Uh, some people, uh, a lot of tenants, are worried about being evicted. There seems to be a hold on them at the moment, but then you've got the landlords. They've been standing there, uh, you know, holding a, a bag of, of, of empty bills for a long time or a bag of nothing uh, waiting for rent, and we're going to talk about them. So if you are a renter or if you are a landlord, I'd be very interested in hearing from you because most of the coverage has been about the, you know, the poor tenants. But again, there's a lot of people out there that are that are poor landlords, and we want to hear uh, from you as well. I'm, and I mean poor landlords in the you don't have the rent that you're expecting, not that you're, you know, letting rats get into your apartment. But I I'm, I'm suppose there's some landlords that do that as well. Uh, I begin, and, and we welcome a brand-new guest. Patrick Hanley joins us, and he is in studio, and Drew Allen joins us. Uh, he is joining us uh, from afar in California on the Zoom. And, Patrick, I want to begin with you. First of all, uh, are you vaccinated? Yes, I am, Bruce. Okay. And what is your reaction to why so many Americans seem to be distrustful of the government and unwilling to get vaccinated. Like 90 million yeah. Americans haven't joined up yet. Why, in your opinion, do you think that's the case? Right. Well, first, I just want to I want to start and set the context a little bit. I remember about a year ago working with state governments uh, when vaccine hesitancy was closer to 40 percent. So there was a much higher number of folks that said they weren't going to get vaccinated uh, from all different demographics. I mean, we were worried about black folks, Hispanic folks, uh, the poor, as well as folks across the political spectrum. But now I think we're seeing a real politicization of vaccine hesitancy, uh, which is a shame and a challenge. Uh, and so I think when we reach out to folks and try and uh, persuade them to get vaccinated, I think it really needs to come from our friends on the right uh, to help us make the case that the CDC is is trustworthy and the vaccine works. All right. We have a friend on the right right now who joins us from California. He's a conservative podcaster. He's also uh, in the entertainment business as a comedian. Uh, Drew Allen, I asked you, you know, several hours ago when we chatted, you are not vaccinated and you're not going to be vaccinated. Why? 
Yeah, that's correct. I'm a healthy, uh, active 34-year-old American citizen who has no reason to get vaccinated. It's the same reason I don't get a flu shot every year. And frankly, it's insane that we have to explain ourselves these days in a free country in which my medical decisions are frankly nobody else's business. But if your decision is according to some experts in the public health field, if your decision could impact other people uh, in a bad way, uh, is there no collective civic responsibility to do something for the good of the broader public? Do you have, is there any uh, obligation or responsibility, you think, or obligation for you? No, there's zero obligation whatsoever when it comes to this vaccination effort. Uh, it's not my obligation as an American citizen um, to make personal decisions with regards to getting a vaccine, uh, you know, to, to benefit some other person in America. I mean, you can make the same argument if it's about saving lives uh, with regards to getting in your automobile every day. I mean, we lose yeah. over 30,000 people a year to automobile fatalities. And, you okay. know, sometimes it's the driver's fault. Sometimes it's another driver's fault. Let's let Patrick respond to that. And then I want to bring uh, Nick Kacharubis into the conversation. Drew, I think the, the car example is interesting. It's one of the most heavily regulated industries in the country. And actually, you know, we spent the last 60, 70 years uh, mandating things like seatbelts, emissions tests and uh, safety regimes. So that you bring up cars. Do you do you wear a seatbelt when you drive, Drew? Well, wearing a seatbelt is a horrible analogy because wearing a seatbelt is about protecting my own life. Whether I wear a seatbelt or not has nothing to do in terms of someone else's life in another car. OK, so I understand those things are in place, but, you know, we can divide things into B.C. and A.C. And that's before COVID and after COVID. Prior to March of 2020, Americans made rational, common sense decisions to avoid dying. After COVID, we make irrational, insane decisions to avoid living. Uh, I want to bring Nick Kacharubis from DePaul University into the conversation. Uh, Nick, how did this get so political, and is there, uh, is, is there light at the end of this tunnel? Uh, tough question. I mean, I think it's been political from the start, uh, as we've seen it evolve, but particularly uh, as the, uh, the, the Biden presidency uh, he made it part of his agenda to have pe uh, people vaccinated at a certain level. I think that uh, in itself added an, another level of politicization, uh, especially to folks who, who did not believe in the legitimacy of President Biden's election. Uh, and so right now we're in the middle of uh, a politics war and a public health war, you, and they're two separate things, and you, unfortunately we like to confuse those. Do you think that President Trump could have done more to uh, communicate that uh, the vaccine, which he touted, I mean, he's, we have a vaccine because of him, uh, that that is something that should have been used by the vast majority of the United States and many of his followers, many of whom are in the 90 million who aren't yet vaccinated. I do think he could have done more from the bully pulpit of the presidency. Uh, he could have uh, uh, talked about it in the sense of, of something that, that needed to be done. I do think that there is uh, some room for skepticism of some people because it hasn't gotten the permanent approval, but there's been enough time uh, where it's it's been moving forward where uh, I think people can uh, talk to their doctors and start making those decisions. But, but Trump got 
COVID. Uh, President Trump got COVID. Uh, he had the best health care that was available. Mm -hmm. A lot of Americans don't have that ability to have that. Uh, and so for that reason, uh, I think that uh, it would it would do a lot for the public health issue. I'm not saying the political issue, the public health issue for President Trump to say a vaccine is a step in the right direction. Let's move through this and then let's work through our policy debates beyond that. But, Patrick, your response. Yeah. And I'll say, listen, President Trump, uh, he got vaccinated. Right. And so I think that's an important thing to take into consideration as well. This could have been the biggest slam dunk of his presidency. I mean, Operation Warp Speed was really an impressive uh, uh, program of government spending. And we developed a vaccine very quickly. There you go. A progressive congratulating Donald Trump on something. Right. I'm Bruce Dumont back shortly <laughs> from Chicago. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. <laughs> I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. 
Bruce Dumont back. Thanks very much for joining us on Beyond the Beltway this evening, 1-800-723-8289. Drew Allen uh, is uh, joining us from uh, California, and he is uh, joining us via Zoom. Uh, Drew, my question to you is, uh, how does this chapter in American history end? If, if, If everything stays right the same and, you know, a large portion of Americans are not getting vaccinated and hospitalizations are going up and uh, the new variants are coming in, and who knows how many variants are down the road. Uh, when is enough enough? I mean, how does it end? Well, if the government and the establishment have their way, which are enjoying um, the reassertion and denial of the original American experiments that states that our rights are unalienable and come from our creator, if they are successful in the future, as they have been over the last year and a half, in going back to the dark ages in which our rights come from them from government this will never end do you and that's think, the point of all this but again this isn't you, about saving lives wait, wait this a is minute. about but this wait. is about government control and barack obama himself admitted it in an interview with ezra klein not too long ago he said this was covid was an opportunity to fundamentally transform the way the americans view their relationship with the government and that's that our rights come from them that's we have to get a vaccine to enjoy right. our rights. This All is right. no different than pre-1964. All right, let's go to Patrick. Yeah, Drew, listen, uh, you're, you're very angrily making a case that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, the public health system in this country was fundamentally flawed. We've been trying to reform it for you know, something like 20, 30 years. And if we get through this health crisis with better funded hospitals, with a more coordinated public health response, uh, then we'll be able to tackle the next one. And there will be a next one, uh, probably a lot more effectively. But do you, do you believe that if the founding fathers were alive today, you don't believe they would be encouraging the public health professionals who are experienced and, and learned in areas of science that are suggesting that the general population follow their advice? Do you, do you think they would be against that? Drew? Absolutely, they would be against that. I mean... The level of tyranny we're experiencing in America today is far beyond that that the founding fathers experienced in the 18th century, in which they were far Drew, more what, free Drew, what, what, than their what is, what is, what is to, Drew, Drew, let me ask you this. What is tyrannical about someone who is learned, who knows something about science, who knows something about medicine, who knows something a lot more than a lot of other people? What's wrong with intelligent people giving direction to people who aren't as educated? What's wrong with that concept? Why is that tyrannical? Well, I mean, the fact is, today, I, reject, today I listen. Today I listen. I reject to, the condescension. I reject the condescension well, of that attitude. You, you may, but which you is know nothing what? different from the plantation attitude, which is we know best. You know, the slave is are better you off saying, in the system you, in which no, no, you know but, their but lives you, are governed you, you by You are others. putting words That's in my mouth. Are you to. saying? Are you saying that people and, who are educated don't have? don't have the ability or don't have the willingness or don't have the obligation to share their knowledge with people who are less interested, less educated than they are about a specific subject that they've spent 16 to 20 years talking about. Are you that anti-intellectual? Well, that's fascinating. Thank you for the condescension. Let me put it, it this way. It isn't meant to be condescension. Why, In the don't, beginning you, of why don't you answer the question I asked? Hold on. I'm going to answer the question. Because you keep talking about how these scientists are so much smarter than we are. We had the frontline doctors at the beginning of this who said that hydroxychloroquine was an effective treatment to save lives. 
Dr. Fauci and the intellectuals and the so-called elite in this country who know better than me and everyone else, they decried, they decried those frontline doctors and they decried uh, Donald Trump for purporting misinformation. Well, now we know, of course, there's a study that proves that hydroxychloroquine and zinc can save lives, that the survival rate is three times what it would be if you didn't have those treatments. And who were so the, I'm and sorry. Who, and, who were, and who were the, but by, by the way, in, in any field, in any field, you, you name the field, mm -hmm. you're going to have a large percentage of people who are going to agree on one position, especially in the world of science. And I agree with you, there's a lot of me tooism that goes along with, with scientists. They don't want to step out of line. However, you also know that there are some people who are who don't know as much as their colleagues in medical school. And if you're looking for someone who's a contrarian, especially in our climate of cable television, it's going to be easy to find a contrarian. Because in, in this case, I think the news media, specifically cable television, all cable television, has done a disservice to the American people. They have confused the American people by bringing onto the air, either perpetuating the, 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 uh, the, the officialdom of an Anthony Fauci or bringing in other people who have differing opinions that, that may not be as credentialed as Anthony Fauci. Patrick has got a comment, then we'll, we'll go back to you. Go ahead. Gosh, Bruce, what do I say to that? That was fantastic. I couldn't agree more. Uh, and if we could jump back to the founding fathers, let's not forget that General George Washington was the first American to inoculate American citizens. Uh, he had a mandate that his soldiers be inoculated against uh, viruses and it saved their lives. So when we go back to the founders, I want to defend their integrity a little bit and say that they knew better too. And I'd like to just, again, on that founders comment, I was thinking a, a different, what about the duty of the government to protect its people and its citizenry? I know that that's, that can open a can of worms uh, for a lot of folks, but how, at the end of the day, if the government does nothing, then uh, people would be uh, dis disappointed with the way government handled it. So uh, we, we, we have to trust some experts uh, and I think that uh, we that, that we're doing that in a manner uh, or some folks are doing that in a manner uh, as as the founding fathers put their trust in their their department heads is that drew in in your in you and by the way there's a lot of people in fact I would agree with you on a lot of points there's a lot of people who have a legitimate reason to question the government I really believe that and if you've been a longtime listener to this program I certainly am, am, am one of those However, I don't think the government is always wrong. They may be wrong a lot of times, but they're not always wrong. And there are people there that want to manipulate their positions. I agree with that. I don't think that happens all the time. So for you, just, I just want to talk about your personal life here. Is there anything that any public figure would say that would change your mind? Is there someone that you would listen to if they said to you, Drew Allen, would you please just go out and get a couple of shots? No, there's not. Nobody. Okay. Because there's such a thing more important, which is freedom and unalienable rights. It's amazing to me. I would be interested to know what Patrick has to say about the fact that Israel has a 90% vaccination rate in their adult population, and the majority of their cases and hospitalizations are amongst the vaccinated. Drew, that makes so that's sense. the model Drew, that we want to be, right? You can friend, look at, at other places math. around the world as well that have a superior vaccination rate, that don't have illegal immigrants pouring through the border Ooh. freely, testing positive for COVID. Oh, Meanwhile, on, the American citizen but, is told, uh, oh, the unvaccinated are the Drew, problem here. Well, Drew, you're, you're the unvaccinated point, certainly are the problem in Israel. Drew, 
you're, you're making a point about illegal immigrants. Again, I would agree with you on that. Let, let's try not to conflate the issue. Let's let Patrick respond, and I know that uh, uh, Nick Capturubus wants to respond as well. True. Go ahead. When 90% of folks are vaccinated against COVID, the statistics are such that you're going to have more folks in the hospital with COVID through breakthrough cases, even though those are vanishingly small, less than 1% using Pfizer. So when you, when you do the math and break this stuff down, you realize that it's nothing more than, than hot air. You know, I would just say that, you know, the, the research on this particular virus is changing and it's evolving, and that's scary. But that, that also doesn't mean that we shouldn't take steps to uh, make our, our society a more healthy place as we learn those things. And as we learn new things, we will continue to make those changes as well. But just to say, well, I just don't want to believe in it. Uh, it's a conspiracy. It doesn't exist when when no one said that. are saying No that. one said it's a conspiracy. Well, what My about point folks that are, is that what over 60,000 like, people died in the flu season in 2017, 2018. There were 800,000 hospitalizations. There were 40 million people infected with the flu. What threshold is the acceptable risk of death? True, it's less than that. There was 35 million reported cases of hospitalizations of COVID and there are 600,000 dead. Do you see the difference? Yeah, I do. I see that 700,000 have died of AIDS in this country. When you add up all the years of car fatalities, 30,000 every year. And Drew, we're nausea, putting a lot of money a real into way. AIDS I'm research. Saying, you know, your point is COVID to treat lives and to matter. Cure those That's your things. point. You don't care about the suicides. You don't care about the death. You don't care about all of the, the other lives that were ruined because of lockdowns and everything else. For you, no death is tolerable, tolerable if it's COVID. Cancer, 600,000. So Heart disease, 600,000 every year. But you're fixated on COVID. Well, what happens when the emergency rooms and the hospitals can't treat the people who got in a car accident because we didn't take a shot uh, of COVID that would keep that person from the hospital? I think that is the issue uh, of, of people being able to get health care when they need it for those other things uh, because COVID is something we can do something about. Yeah, like offer hydroxychloroquine, zinc, ivermectin, all these treatments. There's no focus on treatment of COVID. And a lot of these people are frankly allowed to die because these treatments are not given to them. I mean, the government has blood on their hands as far as I'm concerned, because they carried out this campaign to say that hydroxychloroquine was dangerous, even though it's been around since the 1940s. And now we have a study that proves that it works. How many lives have been one lost study, in this country because one study, the federal government did not study. allow hydroxychloroquine to be used as a treatment? One study. Yeah, I'd say the don't, issue. don't, uh, I'm sorry, Bruce, don't no. try this at home, folks. Uh, well, and, and, and in research, we always say that there is no proof. Uh, there's there's support and not support, but I wouldn't say it's one study proves anything. Drew, one thing this makes me think about is you obviously believe that COVID-19 is a dangerous disease. Why are you so fixated on the vaccine and not these other kind of random I'm going to get your answer to that. We do have to break. We also have callers at, on the line 1-800-723-8029. We'll bring them in. And also, we're then going to switch gears and talk about evictions back shortly. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, 
but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back. We continue with our broadcast. And at this point, we let each of our guests take a moment to introduce themselves. And we're going to begin with Nick Ketcherubis. Nick, tell everybody who you are. Nice to be back with you, Bruce. I'm a teaching professor in the School of Public Service at DePaul University. Uh, And I'm also uh, the elected city clerk in Crystal Lake, Illinois. Um, And uh, I uh, teach classes in uh, uh, public administration and nonprofit management, uh, as well as local government. And you've done some research specifically on the role of the Chief of Staff for Presidents of the United States? That's correct. Uh, over uh, the course of uh, several years, I've interviewed uh, 13 living Chiefs of Staff and looked at uh, how to effectively uh, work in a White House setting and try to honor the President's wishes, but also create a government that makes things happen. Is there one that stands out as the most unique uh, person that you've interviewed? 
Oh gosh, they're all unique in their own ways. Uh, certainly, you, I have favorites of, of uh, folks like uh, Leon Panetta and uh, Andy Card. Uh, did you get to Rumsfeld before you passed? I, I did not get to Rumsfeld, okay. but I did uh, 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 Vice President Cheney mm -hmm. uh, for his time sure. uh, forward. So, okay, uh, Patrick Hanley, tell us your maiden voyage on Beyond the Beltway. Go ahead, Bruce. Thanks so much for having me on. I am what I call a recovering management consultant. I was with McKinsey and Company until earlier this summer, but I recently created a firm, Mason rock, uh, which means I get to meet with small business owners, startups, and entrepreneurs, uh, help them address some of their biggest challenges and potentially place some capital with them to invest them and okay. help them grow. But when you start a company, obviously there's a lot of people that want money. Uh, do you do you bring the money to the pot? Do you create the pot? Or, I mean, is it part of your job that you've got to create the pot from mm -hmm. which you give money away? Yeah, that's an interesting question. That used to be part of my job when I was uh, with the Asia Group. I would bring money from uh, funds to businesses. Now I'm, uh, I'm in a position that I can bring some money to the table as well. Okay, very good. And let's go to uh, Drew Allen, who joins us uh, via Zoom. In, uh, you're in Napa, California, a beautiful area out there. Uh, Drew, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so I, I speak Italian. I lived in Italy for about five years. I used to work in fashion, lived in Milan for about two and a half of those years in Italy. And then I worked in Hollywood uh, as an actor and then an independent film producer as well. Mm -hmm. um, and now I, I am fully committed to, um, to what I'm doing now in terms of I wrote a book called Uncommon Sense. I'm a political analyst, um, author, writer, write columns for a lot of these, these publications as well and have a podcast. Now, you mentioned to me uh, when we spoke several hours ago that, uh, you know, because of working in the fashion industry and working in Hollywood, virtually everyone that was within your sphere of influence were, were liberals. And yet uh, you believed in, in, in 20, you, you wanted to vote for Donald Trump, and uh, you were then suddenly a pariah in their midst. Uh, tell us how quickly that unfolded when they knew that, you know, you were thinking of voting for Donald Trump. Well, it was pretty immediate. I mean, despite the fact that I'd had relationships going back for more than a decade with some of these individuals, I was never a closeted conservative. I always believed uh, in the Constitution in this country and in freedom and the greatness of America. And, you know, after the four years of this uh, hyper political climate in which if you watch CNN or NBC or the mainstream media every day, Donald Trump was Adolf Hitler and anyone who voted for Donald Trump was the equivalent. And so uh, they decided that despite all of our, our history together, that, um, you know, they could no longer associate with me or be friends with me. So you were radicalized by your friends. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I never I never asked anything of them. I was perfectly mm -hmm. happy to have conversations and I put up with uh, their difference of opinion for a decade or more. Uh, but something about 2020, of course, it changed. And it wasn't my decision to eliminate those friendships and move on, but it was theirs. Uh, Nick, uh, have you heard similar stories? Uh, I think I think it's similar on, bo on both sides. I think we are in a hyper-politicalized environment, and if you're not extremely, I mean, I sort of as a center uh, individual, it's like if you're not 100% uh, in the, sort of the Bernie Sanders liberal camp or you're not 100% believing in, in, in the conservative camp, then then you're you're sort of ostracized by both sides. So I, I think it's not, and, and I'm sorry to hear uh, of, of Andrew's experience, but, but I, think it's, I think it's similar. Is the loss of civility in your view, Patrick, uh, would, you, would you cop to the fact that maybe some progressives uh, have created the climate we have? And uh, not exclusively, but would you acknowledge that 
that maybe uh, the folks that uh, that Drew was talking about, uh, you know, maybe they were not acting in the best interest of, of, of a civil discussion of politics. Drew, listen, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, man. Uh, that is that is never good to hear, and I don't know that uh, irreparable ruptures of friendships is the way to go, way to, the way to approach the way other folks vote. What I will say is that the media environment has created a place where extremes get attention, uh, and attention is currency. So there's a huge incentive for folks to say kind of ridiculous things, uh, and they get a lot of attention. One way to do that is to antagonize folks. And no, it's it's a huge shame that that is that is the predominant way that we communicate in this country, and I hope we can do better. Yep. And social media certainly contributed. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. I it think makes it with easier. social media, we sort of people I think get their attention in in chunks, and you know right. whatever yeah. gets the. It's easier to be nasty with your with with your little Facebook yeah. posts. Right. Yeah. Let's go to Boise, Idaho. Uh, and let's go to Kevin, who's listening to us out there. Go ahead, Kevin. You're on the air. I mean, especially... Go ahead. Hello. Hey, Bruce. Uh, sorry, it's been dead air for the last few minutes for me, so I haven't been able to listen to what you uh, guys have to say, but that's all right. What I wanted to call in about last I was, was hearing was whether or not we should trust people who are smarter than us to make the decisions on whether or not to get the vaccination. And I, having a degree in statistics and other college degrees, biology and a lifelong uh, business owner and successful at that, I think I'm smart enough to make my own decision. What I'm lacking is here in Idaho, we cannot get any of the information of the hospitalizations, how old they are, their comorbidities, all that information, race, gender. We can't get anything. I I guess we can get some things, but they won't give us all the information they're giving the CDC. Earlier this week, I was able to, to actually um, confront our governor here in Idaho and ask him if he would release that information to the public. He acted like I was an idiot. Oh, it's all released. What I'm going to do starting tomorrow is I'm going to file a Freedom of Information Act against the state of Idaho to get the information that I seek mm-hmm. to make that decision. And that's all I ask. Mm-hmm. Give me the information so I can make the decision. When, I am smart enough. When 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 you hear, hear public officials uh, talk, uh, and again, they 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 take on um, a, a, a a deified uh, respect, if you will, uh, and and media picks up on them. I'm specifically talking about Andrew uh, Anthony Fauci, and when he started, uh, I thought he did a great job as a representative, and uh, there were times when. What he said uh, was uh, it underscored what President Trump had said, and there were times when it looked like he clearly disagreed with President Trump, but he wasn't going to say it and lose his job. But it seemed to me that what happened with Anthony Fauci, he, he became the singular go-to guy in the media, and whenever anyone, I don't care what the subject is, whenever anyone is hyped to the degree that Anthony Fauci was hyped, you're going to pick up any slip of the tongue he might make. And by the way, he was a guy who didn't think masks were important at one point. I mean, every single word that they would hang on Anthony Fauci, and the more he talked, the more distrustful I think a lot of Americans felt. 
Mm. What's your thought on it? You probably really like Anthony Fauci. (laughs) I don't dislike Anthony Fauci. I'm really talking about the media's responsibility. Mm. They decide this guy is the expert. And by golly, he's going to be the expert everywhere. Mm. And I think that was a huge mistake with uh, with Anthony Fauci. Yeah, Bruce, I think there's a lot of sense to that. And I, I would just say that the one thing that gives me confidence is knowing that there's a lot of scientists, there's scientists worldwide that get their data independently, that all come to their own independent uh, determinations and the vast majority of scientists on COVID-19 uh, and on the vaccine, as well as on things like climate change, they agree on this stuff. And so when I see folks uh, with facing their own incentives, with their own data, doing their own work, uh, coming to an agreement, that gives me confidence. Uh, and I, I listen, Kevin, I hear you. I think the data should be released. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, there's no real reason why in a democracy we shouldn't see, uh, at least at a meta level, the kinds of data that governments use to make these big public health decisions. Well, in, in this case, you know, in, in this case, yeah, we should have it released, but I don't understand why people are, are complaining about the vaccine hesitant. My wife and I are almost 60 years old. We would like to get vaccinated, but we see the good and the bad. There's been problems out here in Idaho mm-hmm. where people have had definitive links of problems to the vaccine. So what's our odds? Mm-hmm. Our odds of getting this or getting COVID? I can figure that out really easily given the information, but the fact that they feel compelled to withhold what was gathered with taxpayer funds angers me even more. The fact that they talk down to me angers me even more. Most of these politicians aren't smart as a loaf of bread. Um, And bureaucrats, I'm not so sure I trust all of them either. After all, Anthony Fauci did not tell the truth the first time he was asked about funding going to the Wuhan lab. Mm -hmm. So once you lose that respect, You've lost, in my eyes, all respect. I've got to go to somebody else, and I can go to my own opinions if I'm allowed the information. Okay. And I won't get a shot until I see that information. Patrick? Kim, can I just, can I just say, uh, regardless of the status of data in Idaho, uh, the thing about this global pandemic is you can see data worldwide, and there's other states in this country, like I know Illinois, uh, and other countries in the world that do release this kind of data. And I do encourage you to, to look into the data and see how the vaccine works relative to, you know, uh, uh, contracting COVID-19. All right. Kevin, we got to have the data. Oh, go ahead. Finish your point. Does it have the data as far as, as all the comorbidities? Does it give that data in Illinois? Check out the Kaiser Family Foundation website. That's a great source of, of open source data, as is the Johns Hopkins University's indexes. Thanks very much. Uh, we're going to move on. Uh, when we, when yep. we come back, uh, we're going to bring up uh, the conversation of uh, evictions, and uh, Drew Allen's got some strong opinions on that. By the way, for those of you who are tired of Anthony Fauci, Today on television, uh, Dr. Francis Collins. He is the director of the National uh, uh, Health Institute. He's been there for a long time, appointed by uh, Obama and Trump and, and, and Biden. Uh, interesting conversation today and a very interesting background. Bruce Dumont, back shortly. At Social Security, we are always thinking of ways to save you time and make things easier. That's why we created My Social Security. A My Social Security account allows you to access your earnings history and benefits information, request a replacement Social Security card, get a proof of income letter, estimate and apply for benefits, and more. Save time. Go online. Open a My Social Security account at ssa.gov slash myaccount. Social Security. Securing today and tomorrow. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. 
Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Back, and uh, we are going to continue, but uh, I want to spend some time. Uh, one of uh, Drew Allen's pet topics, and I think it's probably a pet topic of a lot of people, is uh, what do we do about uh, the situation with evictions? So uh, I'll, I'll let you make the, the opening uh, uh, salvo here, uh, Drew. Uh, what is your biggest concern about uh, the eviction is issue with the country? Well, it's indicative of everything. I, I just want to address something, and it does tie into this. I am answering the question, I promise, okay? okay. You know, Patrick said something earlier, and he said, I sound angry. And he's right. Because myself and tens of millions of Americans in this country are angry. And this is one example with the CDC. They are seizing authority that they do not constitutionally have. Unelected bureaucrats are extending a moratorium on evictions. Joe Biden himself admitted that he knows that it's unconstitutional. And they're desperately searching to put together some expert who can just say, okay, yeah, well, I think it's constitutional when you don't have to be a constitutional scholar or expert to know this is insane. You know, the CDC, one individual at the CDC does not have the authority to set legislation 
and to extend this moratorium. The Supreme Court just clarified it, and they said it wasn't constitutional, even though they allowed it in terms of Kavanaugh. You know, he was the one vote that didn't, he said in the statement, of course, that it was unconstitutional, but he didn't come out against it because he said it was gonna expire anyway. Mm -hmm. But we have, for four years, the Americans who supported Trump, for example, had to watch as Donald Trump was impeached and attacked for crimes that were invented, fabricated, that he did not commit. And now we have an example of a government, Joe Biden's administration, literally supporting a unconstitutional act saying, okay. well, you know, it'll buy us some time. Let's come back. And there's let's, no let's, 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 let's come back to that. I want to go, I want to, go to you, uh, Professor. Um, do you agree with, with, the, the, with what the president did was basically he acknowledged that he was going to try to do something unconstitutional? Was that a stupid thing or was it politically smart for him to do it? Uh, I, don't, I don't think it was. Uh, I, I certainly think it was unconstitutional in the sense that the uh, Supreme Court did say Congress needs to act. Um, to raise false hope? Uh, I, do, I do think it raises false hope because what the, what the Supreme Court said in that decision was Congress needed to act. Uh, and as we've seen, uh, Congress has, has not been able to do that. Is raising a false hope a good idea, Patrick? Do you, and do you agree with that? No, I think I reject the premise. I think the reality, and let's set the context here, there's $46 billion that is moving from the federal government that's already been allocated to the states that is getting to the landlords to make them whole. And only 7% of that has been uh, dispersed for all I'll sorts come. of complicated reasons. Uh, in part because the state governments have had to set up parallel infrastructures to get this to the right folks, which is challenging, uh, and they got to step their game up. But the reality is if this buys 45 days, 60 days for state governments to get that money to landlords to keep folks in their houses, to keep women and children in their apartments and prevent them from going out of the street, uh, then it was a very worthwhile thing to do. From a political standpoint, and I want each of you, I'll ask you, Professor, first. From a political standpoint, do the Democrats have to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to be the party of the tenant or are they going to be the party of the landlord? I don't know if I would necessarily say it that way. I, I do think that it's a difficult spot. I agree with Patrick in the sense that there are, are there are uh, people who need need to be able to stay in their homes. I don't think people should be thrown out. But I also think there is a plight of the 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 owner of the mm. property. They for in many cases they haven't gotten rent. Uh, and uh, I know as a local government, you're still getting taxed, at least in those states that charge you property tax. And and there is that money in there. And I, so I think they were trying to find a way to buy time, whether it was constitutional or not. Uh, I'll leave to the constitutional lawyers. However. Um, the problem is, is that infrastructure wasn't there. The money's not. We saw that even in Illinois with with unemployment, that, and that's a problem. So should there should there be some form of tax uh, give back or tax uh, waiver for, for those for, owners during this period of time? I, I think so. I, I think something needs to be looked at in including that a payback or credit. I don't know if I would go that far, but I think some relief or some, some extension, just like we're asking for the renters to get some extension. Drew, a comment to you. Well, that'll never happen because um, what this is about, if you read Saul Linsky's Rules for Radicals, of course, this is out of the playbook. They've been doing this forever. This is communism in its purest form. All right. This is, this is you know, you have these tenants who are mostly middle class people who invest in these, in these uh, buildings, et cetera and they have to pay the bank back. So this is about a war against the middle class, of course, which Rules for Radicals explicitly states out is necessary to creating this Marxist revolution in the country. That's the dirty little secret of all of this, okay? The, the Democrat party will never look out and help the tenants. 
Okay, because the tenant's a bad guy. They're evil, you know. These people that are not paying their rent, you know, God forbid they face eviction for not paying, you know. We've got to look out for them. But the guy, the, the, you know, the poor sap who owes the, a mortgage or something to the bank, if something happens to him and he loses that and it goes to the bank and he defaults, well, that's too bad, you know. Patrick? Yeah, thinking about how to respond to this, Drew. And, and let me just say, the Democratic Party, to your point earlier, Bruce, is a big tent party, and I think that's what we're showing. I live in Nutria no, it's not. northern suburbs of Chicago, so we've got uh, mostly wealthy, affluent folks there. We've got activists. Uh, we've also got moderates, and, and that's something that we're seeing both in this situation, where Cori Bush uh, led the, the charge with, with moral courage to push the administration to extend the moratorium eviction. Um, and, and we're also seeing that with the, the bi bipartisan infrastructure bill as well. Drew, go ahead. I mean, where does, this, well, this what is happens astounding. here? How, how does this, what, tell us how this okay. resolves. I mean, is the, it's the, is the Supreme Look. Court gonna come in and, and, and rule again that this is a bad idea and unconstitutional? And what, what happens to the people that are expecting money from the government? Are they going to get it or not? And who gets it? Does the tenant get it or does the landlord get it? Who would you give it to? Yeah. Well, firstly, private property to? rights are indispensable to liberty. You can go back to John Locke and so 1690 so the landlord. that. So the landlord gets it. Well, and hey, let's remember the landlord's going to get it. There's $45 billion that's moving through the system right now. You said earlier, Bruce, Slowly. I hope they get paid back. And, and they will. They'll be made whole uh, for the for the pandemic. But, well, is it, but, but I, is I, it, I do think Drew has a point in in some regards. I'm not going to yeah, yeah. bite off all that argument, but in the sense that if the landlord can't pay off their their bank loan, they lose the property. They they're they're yes. out. So something needs to be done in that middle space, and and that hasn't been answered. Hey, we're a big tent. I agree with that. Drew Allen, uh, thank you very much for joining us. You are a conservative podcaster. Where do people find your podcast? Quickly. Uh, Spotify, Apple, everywhere you can find them. The Drew Allen Show. Very good. Thanks for joining us tonight, representing the conservative perspective. We'll be back with Patrick Hanley and Nick Kacharubis and Major General Jeffrey Schlosser in the next hour. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. 
Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its Pre-Diabetes Awareness Partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back for hour number two of Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us. Our phone lines remain open at 1-800-723-8289. In the studio, we are joined by Patrick Canley. He is a consultant and a Democrat to persuasion, and also Nick Kacharubis, who is a professor at DePaul University and uh, has been around this, this guest chairs for many, many years. Uh, if you listened to the program a couple of weeks ago, you heard Major General Jeffrey Schlosser who is author of a new book called Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan. He was a terrific guest. He joined us for an hour. We got lots of response. And given what is happening in Afghanistan uh, just in the last couple of weeks since the general was on the program, we have invited him back to join us. So, General, welcome back to Beyond the Beltway. I'd like hey, to- Bruce, thanks for having me back on. I'd, I'd like to begin by getting your uh, update assessment of what you've seen with your own eyes, uh, at least via television over the last couple of weeks. Uh, it seems to me that the situation that you were projecting uh, might be more dire than you expected. Yeah, so Bruce, I mean, obviously, you know, we talked about it two weeks ago and I warned that it was going to be pretty traumatic and uh, fairly horrific over a period of time. I was thinking months up to a year or so. Mm -hmm. uh, what we're seeing right now is is the collapse of the Afghan army in certain locations. And, uh, you know, we've at this point now, uh, two weeks ago, none of the provincial capitals, there's 34 uh, provinces. Think of them as states inside of Canada or just like in the United States. Mm -hmm. And then they're made up of districts uh, like uh, counties. And so out of the 34, none had fallen um, two weeks ago. And the latest count that we have as of just about an hour ago is, is uh, four or maybe five have fallen. Uh, and many of them are in locations or several of them are in locations that we really didn't think. I, I would not have guessed that it would have been up in the northern area, which is the uh, area of the Northern Alliance, which uh, tends to be uh, uh, anti-Taliban and uh, anti-Pushtun. And so what you're seeing there is that, that uh, you know, city centers crumbling, 
uh, fighting uh, occurring in the city centers as well as uh, in the uh, government. And you're also seeing a fairly, and I said this before, that it would happen, an assassination program that is uh, fairly robust. They're, mm -hmm. they're trying to kill, they tried to kill the uh, uh, defense minister mm -hmm. this last week and failed. But they have been killing uh, journalists in a, in a really horrific way, and we won't get into that. Um, as well as uh, others who are uh, been on their target list, such as uh, city government, uh, provincial government, government um, media for sure is on their on their um, target uh, screen as well. So. All in all, it's pretty, uh, pretty grim. Uh, when we uh, changed from two weeks you know, ago, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, you you urged everyone to to let their members of Congress know how important it was uh, to find a place for those interpreters uh, from Afghanistan who helped American troops to find a place for them to stay and come to the United States. Uh, that that has picked up considerably, but to what extent? Does that need even more speed, given what's happened in the last couple of weeks, and, and those people and their families are now all uh, living in fear? Yeah. So exactly, it's it's a very appropriate question, Bruce. So, and and again, this applies not only to the interpreters that served American forces, but also all NATO forces, including Canada, obviously, as well as in Germany and, and Italy. Um, what's happened is is that. Uh, any way to get to Kabul, which is where the paperwork has to be accomplished, at least for the Americans, uh, and then to fly out of Kabul uh, International Airport, which is the only real standing international airport really left, um, is really challenging now. I mean, just imagine you have your family in tow, you've got some paperwork that proves that you work for American forces or Canadian forces or you name it, right? And you're carrying that with you because you need that as proof. And you get stopped because the roads in many cases are being controlled by the Taliban now and they have checkpoints and they come out, they search your car, they search your bags and what do they find? And then all of a sudden you're, you're about dead. Uh, so the challenge is really to get to Kabul in, in the first place. And, and the American numbers are very high. The, I mean, I've seen the, the U.S. report of it, you know, from the U.S. State, uh, Department of State was 35,000. Um, just think about that. We've probably mm -hmm. got out about four, maybe 600 or so far, mm -hmm. uh, at least from uh, the U.S. side. And I, I do know that the Canadians had at least one flight as well that landed in Toronto just a few uh, days ago. Do you but it's, believe again, that the challenge is going to be immense? Are, are we at this moment, uh, are we as a government, are we uh, acting as quickly as we can uh, on each of these cases, or is there a, a, you know, just a, a universal uh, delay which is brought on by, by uh, bureaucracies? Yeah, absolutely. The answer to your question is absolutely not. We are not acting as fast as we should. Now, shame on us. We should have gotten, as soon as we began negotiations you know, a year ago, uh, we should have started to uh, do exactly what we're trying to do now, which is to get out the translators, the interpreters, the people that work on uh, U.S. funded, uh, I know NGOs, non-government organizations that have links to the United States, they are all part of this mix, although the latter has a different requirement for uh, their paperwork and the bureaucratic uh, machinations. You put your finger right on the problem. It's a, it's a huge bureaucratic issue. Uh, and at the same time, the U.S. Embassy in Kabul is under a great deal of stress. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people there, but I, I just saw a warning yesterday 
from the embassy urging all American citizens to immediately leave Afghanistan. It would not surprise me if you don't see very soon a ordered departure, basically, of some number of, uh, Af uh, of U.S. workers in that embassy. It's going to make it even harder to accomplish what we set out to do. That, along with the uh, just the, the sheer numbers, as well as just trying to get to Kabul, as we just talked about, I think it's uh, it, it's fairly grim situation right now. A lot of people are going to have a real problem, and you're probably going to see many of them just slip over the border. Uh, which is going to, of course, make the situation pretty tense in uh, some of these neighboring countries. Now, you said a couple of weeks ago that uh, the, the number of Americans actually there uh, would be about 600, I believe, uh, to protect the embassy yeah. and, and, and the rest would, would all be gone. My question to you now, given, given the speed with which the Taliban seems to want to rub our nose into it and not give us any you know, peace of mind even for a couple of months during uh, uh, their involvement, uh, is, there a, is there a scenario where a, a larger contingent, contingent of Americans would be sent there to just keep the Kabul or the Kabul Air, uh, airport open? And, and, and I think there's always a scenario that's. Go ahead, Bruce. Oh no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I missed your second. Yeah, I think there's always a scenario that's possible like that. I mean, again, administrations can change their way when reality meet you know meets their desires or mm -hmm. their intent, right? I mean, that's what happened in the Obama administration in Iraq uh, when the Islamic State decided to take over the northern part of that uh, country as well as all of uh, that portion that uh, of Syria that links to Iraq. And so the U.S. drew forces back in, I mean, a significant number of forces. I don't sense that the administration is doing or it wants to do that, clearly. And I'm not sure that they really plan on doing that. I think you're, you are seeing um, the extended use of air support. But again, we've talked about this before, that flying air support now from either the UAE or uh, Qatar or off of uh, aircraft carriers is hours away, uh, literally. And uh, so the number of amount of missions that can be accomplished to support the Afghans is going to be limited. The truth is, is that all the people that helped call in that air support are also gone. They're gone. We've got a pause. We're talking with Major General Jeffrey Schlosser. We'll be back shortly from Chicago. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. 
she could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back. We continue. Patrick Hanley is here. Uh, he is a Democrat. He's also a, a consultant. And, uh, General, he has read your book, and uh, he has a, a couple of questions for you. Patrick, go ahead. General, first, I just want to say it's an honor to be on the on the show with you, and thank you so much for your long years of service. I, I've been reading your book with great interest, uh, Marathon War, uh, and I, I just so appreciate the vivid detail and the stories that you bring to the headlines uh, I've been reading about the events that you participated in, but just uh, just hearing your perspective on it has been has been really interesting. You you talk a lot about courage, competence, and character, and you speak about how the first two, uh, you know, can be can be trained into a force, but the third is more elusive. And it just makes me wonder, from your perspective, uh, how do you how do you train character? Yeah, Patrick, uh, that's that is really a hard question. You know, I. I think that over time, I, I really don't believe that, you know, as I say in the book, any of those attributes that make up good leadership, we're not born with them. You know, I wasn't born with character or, or think of somebody that you really respect and, you know, whoever it might be. And they weren't born, I don't think that way, but they develop it over a period of time. Parents play a big role, I think, and so do mentors and other people of that nature. But it, you really go through school of hard knocks. You know, it's what you experience and how you deal with what you experience, trying to pull out a, you know, a positive light, but at the same time, always insisting that what you do has a certain amount of, one, you're truthful to yourself, then you're truthful to, every, truthful to everybody else. You have integrity, in other words. Uh, people can actually trust what you say, and then eventually trust that you're going to speak the right, well, you're going to speak up for what is right. Those, I think, are really cornerstones for, for, for doing that. I got to tell you, this is, 
you know, developing character in yourself, I've tried hard over, you know, my lifetime. Um, and it takes, it's a lot of hard work, it's, uh, some amount of discipline, I got to tell you that. Um, and over a period of time, I mean, uh, you know, I, I have tried very, really, really hard to be the person that one, my children and my grandchildren would look up to and regard as a mentor and a role model. And in many cases, that, that kind of blood, you know, bleeds over. What you do for your family bleeds over into the organizations you lead. Well, really a, a tough question, though. But, General, I, I got to say, it shines, uh, character shines throughout your book. So thank you for that. Uh, Nick Kacharubas from DePaul yes. University has a question for you, General. Uh, thank you, General. And uh, it sounds like you were talking a little bit about uh, authentic leadership, which is something I teach uh, in uh, my uh, classes. But I, I being uh, someone who uh, works in the public administration realm, my question to you is, is you know, President Biden um, and, and even uh, there's been a debate about pulling out of Afghanistan for a long time. My question is, how should we have done it? You know, I, you know, one Nick. Uh, you know, I, I need to look up your class because I, I, I'm always interested in leadership. Uh, so uh, thanks for mentioning that. I'll look that, look that up because um, I'm a big believer believer in authenticity. You know, I, I, I actually, you know, used to brief uh, President uh, George Bush, and then and then got to take uh, then Senator Obama all around Afghanistan for about a, a full day. Um, and it gave him some advice as well, because that was my job at that point in time. Both of those presidents wanted to uh, find a way to stop a what they already thought was a forever war. And then it was in there, it was not even quite a decade. Uh, clearly, you know, um, you could see that President Trump wanted to, to do exactly the same thing and then put in the negotiations, which I think many of us believe uh, would be uh, needed. I mean, the Taliban were were not going to completely give up, and uh, they couldn't win, but they were not going to lose. The problem is, when you negotiate, you have to have some kind of basis for the other side to actually believe that you're going to do what you say, which is, in other words, I'm going to uphold uh, certain things unless you also do them. And we didn't do that. Uh, and what we did here over the last several months is, is we set a date certain to depart. And then we also said we are fully, we are leaving. We're not going to leave any soldiers or anybody else to uh, help maintain the Afghan army and not even help their Afghan Air Corps, not to you know, help maintain that. The contractors are leaving. All of our NATO allies, they had to leave because we pulled out the logistics. I think if we left a handful, just like 2,500 to 3,000 advisors, that's what we've had. We've had not had a combat casualty uh, at least American forces in over a year in Afghanistan. And if we continue their support and continue to uh, do contractor support and on their air corps, which the plan still goes another two years, it was our plan, uh, but now we are leaving. Uh, I think that that would have been uh, enough. Uh, and Nick, as you well know, as we look around the world, you know, uh, we still have forces in a lot of countries, uh, you know, Japan, South Korea, Germany, uh, Kuwait, all places where we have a national interest. Right. And when you were here a couple of weeks ago, we, I asked that question because uh, th this, was, this was a lack of candor uh, in selling the war early on, is that when America goes to war, 
Americans are going to be there 50 or 60 years later. Mm-hmm. And, and it was soft-pedaled, maybe in the wake of, of, of the attack on 9-11. Maybe presidents didn't think they need to, to, to jack up the troops or the, the, you know, the public about it. But I think that was, that was oversold. I've been talking about that for a decade on this, on this show, that that's, that's a big, big mistake. Now, the, as the United States is going through this horrible you know, withdrawal period, what is China doing, General? Well, you know, let's remind all of our listeners, uh, all of our American listeners that, because uh, some of us aren't so good on maps, right? right. Uh, <laughs> that uh, China actually butts up to Afghanistan. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, there it's not a huge border, but uh, China butts up against it. And they've long wanted to, uh, like they do elsewhere in the world, they wanted access to uh, mineral resources. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they've actually, in an agreement, own one of the world's largest copper mines. Uh, they are in Afghanistan already, and they are trying to build a, tra- a, ra- a railroad uh, um, track uh, through China into Afghanistan to be able to take that those mineral resources out. There's no doubt that they want to take advantage of our departure. That said, they've got issues with um, you know um, Islamic radicalism as well, especially on their western border. Okay. And so they're going to want to play some sort of a constructive role, I think. They don't have real interest in having al-Qaeda for sure. Uh, go back into uh, Afghanistan as a safe haven and start uh, plotting. I mean, uh, the new Al Qaeda, and uh, that, that's a bad term because Al Qaeda really never disappeared. But uh, my guess will be is, is they have no problem attacking uh, China just as much as they have attacking the United States or any of our NATO allies. Or as they did the, the Soviet Union. Or oh, and clearly, so oh, I'm yeah, sorry, right, yeah, yeah. And, and so Russia clearly yeah, also right. has yeah. a deep concern. So the, so the Taliban doesn't necessarily have a logical ally anywhere in the world. Is that true? That they're pretty well, much, time, they're pretty much their, know, own, their mean, own strength sure. is what they have. Uh, the, yeah, the, the Taliban, in the last time they were holding power in Afghanistan, actually had about three, including Saudi Arabia. So I think Saudis made a bad choice. Uh, they clearly aren't going to go that way this time. Um, I don't really think they, they, they talk a good game. They always have had a great propaganda arm, and they're saying that they're interested in international legitimacy. But if you look at the actions on the ground, and, that, and I'm a big believer in actions make a big difference. Um, you know, through their assassination program, through the use of military force to take over all this terrain and all these cities, um, I don't think that international recognition is as nearly as big to them as, as what they're saying. Uh, I could easily see them go without any friends for a period of time because I think there's a certain fear uh, of what uh, could happen in Afghanistan may happen uh, on the frontier of Pakistan. Now, Pakistan has its own Taliban. Mm-hmm. It's called the TTIP, Tariq al-Taliban of Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Sorry for the, the, the acronym there. Um, is, that the co- and- is that the country where the, where the most logical relationship might be because of the Taliban that exists in uh, Pakistan? I think that they they have, I mean, attacked a whole bunch of the, uh, uh, that's not very articulate, they, they have attacked many uh, uh, Pakistani uh, army and frontier corps um, uh, soldiers over the last decade and a half. And uh, and it's been fairly dramatic. The number of, I mean, it's in the thousands how many they've killed. So the, the answer right off is yes. I think that the, you know, this will bleed over into the Western portions of Pakistan, which is still largely a frontier. Um, 
and that's why it's patrolled by the Frontier Corps. It actually has different uh, laws there than the large part of Pakistan. Um, and I do think that that's going to, there'll have to be a great deal of concern starting there. But also in Tajikistan, the, the former Soviet republics that are along the north, all those stands, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, but clearly Tajikistan, the Russians are very concerned. They've been holding uh, military maneuvers right up on the border. And, uh, and let's not forget the Afghan army, uh, a thousand of them uh, fled over the border in Tajik, Tajikistan about three weeks ago. So yes, there, there are some areas where this is going to bleed over. What is the what is the Taliban's economic engine? How do they keep the uh, the wheels of, of government going? Who are they selling what to who? To who? Um, so they'll be taking over the poppy trade. They already have in many cases in the south. And uh, you know they had a couple of years while they were there in power before where they actually stopped it. Just literally just stopped it. They did it through sheer violence. I don't sense they're going to do it this time. In fact, they've been taking advantage of it uh, right now for uh, the times that they've been, you know, able to control or um, at least uh, dominate some parts of these districts in the south where poppies mainly grown, but also in the east. And that's a huge amount of money. Uh, basically, you know, opium trade is still very, very significant. Afghanistan is the number one dealer in opium uh, in the world. So that's going to be the key part. Then probably just trade across the border at uh, the key uh, locations where you could cross the border, the mountains in, into either Pakistan or in the stands in the north, in, and as well as Iran into the west. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Major General uh, uh, Jeffrey Schlosser. The title of the book is Marathon War, uh, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan. General, uh, you were supposed to leave us right now, but have you got an extra 15 minutes you can share with us tonight? Uh, I can do another few minutes. How's that? Okay, we'll do another few minutes and because uh, our guests in studio both have a question for you. As uh, We each have one more question. Back shortly from Sounds Chicago. Good. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy. Or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. 
If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Bruce Dumont back, and we continue uh, with Major General Jeffrey Schlosser. Uh, the title of the book is Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan. And uh, our guests in studio have uh, a question for the general, and we'll start uh, uh, with Patrick Hanley. Patrick? General, when I think about what's happening in Afghanistan now, it's hard not to think about uh, the conflict in Vietnam, in Iraq. And a commonality that I see is that when the United States invades and occupies a country, we often trigger a nationalist reaction. You and Bruce had a good conversation a couple weeks ago about the lack of a national character in Afghanistan, but to the extent that there is one, uh, I think it's, it's resistance to foreign occupation. Now, if that's true, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, how do we think about uh, foreign interventions, humanitarian or otherwise, in the future? Yeah, so great question, Patrick. And so, you know, what I would just do is just to kind of narrow this down a little bit is, is that uh, I still believe, um, you know, what Afghanistan struggles with is a lack of nationalism. I mean, and I, I mean that in a positive sense. In other words, mm -hmm. a sense that uh, there is a government that actually is there to, uh, you know, provide security as well as help your economic well-being. Um, but what they do have, and I've had for thousands of years, is a cultural um, um, what I would say is uh, attribute that that wants to repel any invader. Now, and this is a country, you know, I think we may, may have talked about it two weeks ago with Bruce, is that a country that was first invaded that, that I'm aware of uh, by Alexander the Great in 323 BC. And the history over the last thousands of years are just traumatic. I mean, uh, Genghis Khan, you know, came through. In fact, part of the uh, Hazaras believe that they, they owe their, uh, you know, bloodline back to Genghis Khan's troops. Uh, Tamar the Lane, um, uh, Abdul Khan. I mean, the, the, and then finally, of course, the UK or the Brits, uh, you know, and then, uh, and then the Soviets. And then, of course, the United States and our NATO allies and others that came along. Um, they have a cultural, uh, I would say, you know, affinity, not affinity, but I mean, a revert, ever, I can't think of the right word. They don't want uh, uh, outsiders. And even if the outsiders are coming in and bringing good things, I mean, we brought schools, we brought 
medical care. I mean, this is the collective we. Um, you know, the, the last numbers I saw is, is that the Afghan uh, life expectancy went up 10 years over the last 20, uh, 20 years. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely amazing. But uh, yeah, culturally, uh, they are not much of a nation still, I don't think. Uh, but culturally, they do not want anybody coming into that country. Professor, uh, General, I was going to sort of uh, relate it back to your uh, interest in leadership. You know, you talked about uh, the Taliban maybe uh, not really having any friends initially. Uh, what is what do you see the st- what what is the stability of of the Taliban's leadership or the ability to continue uh, to 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 lead uh, in that environment? Uh, or, or what has your experience been? I think that the Taliban are going to have more challenges now. The the society uh, has educated you know a good portion of itself over the last 20 years. Um, you know, girls uh, are now successful women at 20 years that you know after 9/11 basically, and they've been to school, been to university. They're they are studying to be professors. They are media uh, artists or not artists, but uh, journalists and radio uh, announcers, et cetera, et cetera, TV. Uh, Politicians, um, businesswomen, you know, my guess is going to be that the Taliban will have a hard time trying to actually control them. But, you know, violence has a very significant way of uh, controlling uh, people who uh, don't agree with you. I mean, uh, let's remember that the Taliban took the international soccer stadium in Kabul and converted it during their last reign into a place of public executions. Um, you know, uh, I think I just saw something about two weeks ago that said uh, we're going to go back to Sharia law as far as, uh, you know, uh, burglary and stealing and the market and things like that. Uh, as soon as we can get, uh, we're sure that we've got enough people, doctors who can treat the uh, amputations because what they do is they amputate the hands for anybody that's uh, caught uh, uh, in thievery. Um, this is going to be hard for, I think, many Afghans to take. What I don't think, though, is is a lot of those same Afghans are going to stay in that country. They're going to do everything they can, uh, and I, that's why I call it a basically a human diaspora out of Afghanistan into other countries. And you're going to see that in, in Pakistan, but you're also going to see it uh, through Iran into Turkey, uh, as well as into Europe, and clearly United States and, and other NATO partners. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, my, my, I have one last question, and that is, you you would reference the the importance of poppies uh, to the economy uh, in Afghanistan. In the early uh, involvement of the Afghan war, there was a lot of discussion as to whether or not the United States should completely eradicate uh, the the poppy mm-hmm. fields so that they would not be able to go back to to drug trade. Uh, were you involved in those discussions? Uh, tell us a little bit more about sure. what the ultimate resolution was, because uh, to some, uh, maybe you should have gotten rid of everything. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that uh, uh, there was a huge effort by the United States. And I can't speak for other countries, you know, other allies there, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, and, and so remember that this, a lot of them, a lot of it was in the South as well. But uh, uh, on the east side, uh, let me just go back. While I was there, Bill Wood was the ambassador, Ambassador Bill Wood, William Wood. He had been the ambassador in Colombia. He had learned how to eradicate you know, certain uh, types of plants and stuff like that through aerial spraying. Um, it was always something that was uh, in, debated in the United States as well as debated in Colombia. Should you be doing this? You know, is this uh, going to hurt hurtful to the people? Uh, is it hurtful for the other crops? 
he basically came in wanting to do that and was uh, talked out of it basically by others, including probably senior folks inside the administration at the time. Instead, what they tried to do was actually have uh, a basically a poppy eradication uh, forces, and we actually uh, awarded uh, governors who got rid of poppy. Uh, I'll never forget doing that with several of them. But that all that said is, um, you know, after 40 years of warfare before from the Soviets and everything like that, most of the Afghans had no clue how to raise real food stuff anymore, or any products like that, but they knew how to raise poppy. And uh, so it was pretty hard to uh, stop that. Plus the line of uh, the, the draw from outside, people wanting opium, uh, was really hard to, uh, to stop. So it's, it's still the number one producer. So, so the resistance, just to kind of read through your, your comment here, uh, the resistance did not come from the ambassador on the ground, Mr. Ambassador Wood. It came from higher up somewhere, and uh, that would exactly. include that would include President Bush, Vice President Cheney, and uh, would it also have included the Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld? It could have been, as well as uh, you know, Secretary of State at the time, of course, uh, you know, uh, Secretary Powell. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I can't put my finger on where it was because we. I did not have discussions with the president or the secretary about that uh, specific uh, point. Um, but, a, know, but a though, decision. That, but a you know, decision. Ambassador Wood and I talked about it. And he yeah. said, "Yeah, I sure wish we could have done this because." Uh, but but um, he clearly was being told, "You are not going to do this in Afghanistan." But a decision so, as dr yeah. as as important as that clearly was not happening at your level it wasn't happening at the ambassador's no. level and it was happening at the level of the three or four people that i just mentioned that basically said for whatever the reason that may have been a good reason uh we're not going to eradicate uh the poppy fields we do not want uh we, we don't want to completely run them out of the business and yet the the the, the customers of uh those poppy growers uh, turn out to be uh, americans and people around the world who are addicted to to drugs? So, uh, you know, you may not want to say this, but it was. I think it was a. It was not a wise decision to make. If indeed, uh, at least elsewhere, we were talking about a war on drugs, it didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. But again, that's a political question. I wouldn't necessarily expect you to answer it, uh, but I do want to say that uh, the name of the book is Marathon War. Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan. Uh, the, the, our guest tonight has been the was the head of the 101st Airborne uh, uh, Division during that period of time uh, in Afghanistan. The title of the book is Marathon War. The author is Major General Jeffrey Slosher. He joins us tonight for the second time. Uh, we gave you you gave us a few more than just a couple of minutes. But General, always nice to have you with us, and thank you very much, and good luck with the book. Uh, thank you, Bruce, and uh, and also thanks for, for talking uh, with me, Patrick and Nick. Uh, very intellectually uh, stimulating. So thanks a lot. Very good. Thank, thank you, you very General. much. Thank you, General. It was an honor. Yep. Well. Okay. All right. Take care. Thank you. Good night. Uh, however, we continue here. Um, what's your reaction to my assessment of uh, where the decision was made to not eradicate the poppy fields? Was that, in retrospect, am I being... Uh, simplistic in that uh, that could have been a good thing to do 
it's an, it's an interesting question. I mean, certainly, uh, certainly, this is an uh, an area that's outside of my realm of expertise. But yeah. uh, as far as the decision making capability, it sounds like it's pointing at you know folks in the the, the top uh, top administration. Yeah, sure, yeah. And and the question you asked the question why you know was it was it for a pharmaceutical reason? Was it for potentially rebuilding Afghanistan later? Who knows? But. Um, we don't have those answers. Right. I, I do worry. I spent about 10 years in Washington, and I think it inoculated me to conspiracy theories because I realized there were so many things happening all at once, none of which were very successful. I do worry that this might have been uh, uh, a casualty of the forever war symptom, right? So so many decisions were happening uh, in the national security staff having to do with Iraq, having to do with uh, China and Russia, that this might have been one of those things that just didn't get the attention that it deserved. In retrospect, uh, do you agree that it should have? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, certainly, I mean, it, it, from what I'm hearing, I mean, obviously, I'm, yeah. I'm learning as we as we go, but uh, um, it, it was certainly fascinating to talk to the general. There's always a reason why something that looks like it should be obvious doesn't happen if it doesn't happen. Mm. And I think it may take us 20 years or maybe 40 years to get uh, a straight answer to that. But I think the general... Uh, he pinpointed uh, at least some of the uh, people that were involved in the decision uh, chain of command there, and it went up to the President of the United States. I'm Bruce Dumont. 1-800-723-8029 is the number. Back shortly with one last segment. What if the music stopped? If the familiar voices were silenced? If there were no breaking news updates? What if your companion and connection to your community came with a monthly fee? Don't worry, we're free local radio with you wherever you go. Celebrating 100 years and looking forward to the next 100. We are broadcasters. Text radio to 52886 and let Congress know you depend on your local TV and radio stations. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the voices for recovery. Together, we are stronger for 24 hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders for you or someone, you know, call 1-800-662-HELP brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man. 
you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. If the airport in Kabbalah is going nowhere, I mean, did somebody say... Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. we got one more segment. During the break, I was asking our friends in the studio here um, whether or not there would be uh, an appetite anywhere in the political spectrum for uh, doing some more in Afghanistan before we get to the end of the month or, you know, the, the end is coming up very, very quickly. Uh, what, what's your take for that? I mean, and I, I pose the question, I mean, if we're in a situation, as the general suggested that we might be, that, that the, you know, that the control of the Kabul airport may be just gone, I mean, would there be an effort to at least protect and keep the Kabul uh, 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 airport open? The question to me is whether or not Kabul can be held by the Afghan government with or without the support of the international community, and the answer could be no. Uh, the conflict breaks my heart, frankly, and hearing the general speak about all the Afghans who assisted uh, the United States and the Allies over the last 20 years is, is truly heartbreaking. But what I can't help but think about is whether the strategic situation uh, in Afghanistan between 2000 and potentially 2022 uh, is, is very different. And I, I think about whether leaders will consider this uh, when they think about invading countries in future. Uh, you, you asked about the political situation, and mm -hmm. I certainly don't think there's a, a political appetite in this country, uh, given where things are, uh, to, to see anything more. However, um, you know, the question becomes whether uh, American or international involvement to uh, hold that uh, is of, of interest to Americans or, or, or could be... Uh, uh, sold in a way that that shows that 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 support is 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 important to the stability mm -hmm. for American interests one way or another, which I don't think the administration has been interested in making that case right now, uh, at least under the current leadership. And, and um, the question becomes, if they if it isn't held, what are the long term consequences to American diplomacy beyond mm -hmm. that? Uh, and that those are questions we don't have the answer to. And uh, if if the Taliban is aggressive in, in rooting out those interpreters that help the United States, as well as their families, as well as anybody else, whether it's a, a general, a police chief, a county clerk, whatever it is, uh, that has been perceived as having uh, been, uh, you know, uh, soft on the United States or supportive of the United States, if, if there's going to be an aggressive bloodbath in that country, um, are we ever going to be able to develop any kind of a st structure that would indicate an intelligence structure that would let us know in advance whether or not there were more uh, efforts being made to create other uh, terrorist organizations or terrorist attacks on the United States, like uh, 
what what prompted this war. Well, and if if you'd allow me to in, add one more thing, I, you know, and, and Patrick alluded to this a little bit, but how quickly it's gone uh, the other way uh, since you know, since uh, the American forces have been pulling out yes. just shows how unstable it is. And so the question becomes how much resource is needed. Um, it's obviously a much bigger uh, uh, de- depth of well than, mm-hmm. than we anticipated. And, and what do you do in that situation? I'd say there's not a lot of hope to look for uh, in this situation. But one thing I do think about is what happens when uh, the Taliban if the Taliban were to take power. And the general mentioned something very interesting, that there's been 20 years of women, of uh, moderates, of folks who have lived and to an extent prospered under under a secular government. And whether they will experience and whether they will tolerate the Taliban in the same way over the next 10 years that perhaps Afghans were used to uh, towards the latter half of the 20th century, there might be a ray of, of hope in that. Or they could all be massacred. Well, and that goes back to the humanitarian interest, and, and again, um, and the, we talk about the slow wheels of, of government turning for those pot- potential interpreters, but they don't have time, uh, unfortunately, and their right. their families are, yeah. are are in a much what, worse but, situation. But what do we do if, indeed, it, it let's say for the sake of the discussion, we get as many of those interpreters out. Okay, and they're living somewhere uh, in the United States, and they're living safely in the United States. And then all hell continues to break loose mm-hmm. in Afghanistan, and we get this widespread bloodbath of, of going after women and the educated and the intelligentsia and everybody else. And literally it becomes a situation where literally, I mean, there's a murderous rain going on. Do we just sit back? I mean, does the world just sit back and say, you know what, by golly, we should have done more, but there's nothing we're going to do about this. And it just continues without any hope. I mean, is that where you think we are at? Bruce, it boils my blood. And I am, I'm a liberal here and I'm a liberal abroad. And sadly, my answer to you is that the, the international infrastructure to help in a constructive way, to go in and, and help a country's population through that and then give them the economic assistance they need to create a stable society does not exist at this point. Uh, You look at what happened in Libya, a clear-cut case where a group was going to be massacred by a uh, crazy dictator. The United States and others intervened. The dictator uh, was taken down and and killed, but Libya continues uh, in in a situation of political instability and civil war. I would I would just say, you know, it is unfortunate. I look at even in the situation, and I'm going to liken it to where I've, I've traveled, but in Venezuela, where we've had, uh, you know, mm-hmm. America probably could have done more um, and, and the international community. So uh, it is sad. And, and I don't know if the answer we're coming to is necessarily the right answer, but it's it's what mm-hmm. it's what's being seems to be on the table right now. Nick Kacharubas, we thank you very much from DePaul University, and also Patrick Hanley, thank you very much. Uh, consultant making his first appearance on the program. Nice job this evening uh, from each of you. I want to thank uh, Frank Rodriguez and Anthony Marshall, and also uh, Keith, uh, for Keith Conrad for their assistance. And also, special thanks to Andrew Marshall, who is going back to school uh, next week. So he's saying farewell to these uh, microphones and WIND and helping us on Sunday night, and uh, we wish him well. On a programming note, since we're talking about Afghanistan this evening, uh, I discovered something in the Beyond the Beltway archives that we are going to show for you uh, on September 12th. On September 12th, 
You know, America will have talked about uh, uh, what's been going on uh, for the last 20 years, and we will have a rebroadcast of the show we did 20 years ago that night on the 12th of September. I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night. One forty-five over ninety-two. One eighty over one eleven. One hundred and eighty-two over a hundred. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself. I didn't. Now I do. Uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, don't tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.